Welcome, listeners, to this episode of the Abstract Podcast, brought to you by SpotDraft. My name is Tyler Finn. I lead community and growth for SpotDraft, and we're coming to you live today from the Bellagio in Las Vegas, where we're at Clocks 2023 Global Institute. I'm very lucky to have my friend David Lancelot on the podcast today. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you for having me, Tyler. I want to get started by just giving you a little bit of background on David and his career as an in-house lawyer. He started his career as a GC of a fintech startup in London. We're going to talk about a few stories from that time together, followed by a stint at Baker McKinsey, then as GC of QVC UK. He also spent a year at Amazon in the UK and then 10 years at eBay as VP and global head of legal to the eBay's classified business where he had wide remit, advising the executive team on international expansion, compliance, M&A, a few stories about deals there probably to talk about too, while building and managing a team of 25. In addition to being a business person with legal skills, as he likes to say, David's a lovely person, a very avid cyclist, father, husband, attorney, and as we found out yesterday when, when he uh, was kind enough to moderate our panel, an excellent public speaker. That's very kind. Why don't we kick off by going back to the beginning? You worked at a tech company in London. Sounds like there were some interesting investors involved. Uh, For sure. One famous one. Yeah. How did that set you on your path to being a legal leader? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I showed up in London, went, went to University of Florida for law school. And because I'm, I have a British background, I have a British passport, I was able to go to London and work. Went to London, did a few sort of, you know, document management gigs at law firms like we all have to, <laughs> and then ended up getting a role at a company called Magix, which was funded by NatWest Bank and Intertrust, both of which exist still. And with venture capital from Goldman Sachs and an investment from Paul McCartney. I've heard of that guy. Yeah, yeah. So we had about 40 million pounds in funding. Uh, from Goldman and one million from from Paul. The the business was intended to allow media companies to encrypt content and sell it safely over the new internet. Right, so this is in like 2001. Unfortunately, uh, this thing called Napster came along. <laughs> so the uh, the business didn't really work out, but it was a really interesting you know education in becoming the lawyer for a startup. You know, very early in my career, and uh, as I told you, the partner from the big, they call it the Magic Circle in the UK, right? the yeah. top tier law firms, the partner from the Magic Circle firm, who was supposed to be the general counsel of this hot new startup in the dot-com boom, literally did not show up for work. He literally was like, this is too risky, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And so me, who was the legal assistant qualified in Florida, ended up being the general counsel of the company, which was completely unprepared for, right? Like I really had no idea what I was doing. But it's a trial by fire, right? You gotta figure it out. And I think, you know, probably the biggest learning there, two biggest learnings. One, revenue, make yeah. money, right? These guys just spent all the money to try and drive growth and they're they burned it all and that was the end of that. But also I had a, a really wise ex consultant who I worked with there and he said, This is a great place to learn how not to run a company. Mm-hmm. And I took that forward forever, right? You can learn from both sides of the coin. Absolutely. Good business and bad business lessons in both. Yes. Did you know that you wanted to work in tech at that point? Was that a very intentional move for you? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, 
it seems like a long time ago now, right? Like in 1999, I was taking technology transactions classes at the University of Florida's law school. Mm -hmm. So I, I had always wanted to be in that sector and it was super nascent. It was, you know, the e-commerce directive and the mm -hmm. DMCA and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that was, that was the field I wanted to be in. And so when I got to London, I looked for those kind of jobs and because it was the dot-com boom, there actually were some. They were probably very lucky to have you. You went to... Uh, I learned a lot. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you then went and, and took on some more responsibility as GC at, at QBC. Yeah. Well-run business. Tell us a little bit about having to grow into, into that role. Because of the dot-com crash, I ended up going back to school. And I studied, mm -hmm. did an LLM in technology law at the University of London, which was fantastic, super practical, met some great people, including a partner from Baker McKenzie, who brought me into Baker for a year. And their technology practice pretty much crashed because of the dot-com crash. Sure. You know, all the partners went on sabbatical and all the associates left. Yep. And all the trainees, which I technically was, didn't have anywhere to go except out the door. So I, I went back out the door and, uh, and sort of walked the streets, found a contractor role. Mm -hmm. at a company called QVC, which everybody in the States knows, but like outside of the US, it's not as big a brand, right? Quality, value, and convenience, it's a huge television shopping brand. At the time, there was no like online e-commerce, especially in the UK, mm -hmm. right? So it was a great opportunity to get into a, what we call distance retail, right? Mm -hmm. Like using the interactivity of a television to sell, along with telephone, to sell goods. Yeah. at a distance and it was by far the biggest TV shopping company in the UK but it had you know a lot of reputational issues mm -hmm. right it didn't have an in-house lawyer I mean it was all of the senior execs had their own lawyers right outside they, counsel yes wow Yes, like literally the person who lives next door who happens to be a lawyer was the lawyer for you know whoever right so it gave me a great opportunity to come in and huh. be sort of like tons of low-hanging fruit yeah, like lots of opportunity for improvement. I mean, I can remember like putting a piece of paper on the wall next to the copier that said, do not send contracts out via the fax machine without talking to legal, <laughs> right? It was that basic. So doing those sort of things, learning as you go, and they gave me tons of opportunity to do that, right? Like I, I started, I did a couple months as a contractor just doing the tech stuff, just mm -hmm. you know, buying enterprise back when you had to actually buy servers and mm -hmm. buy tape drives. And then they said, well, we need an in-house lawyer and, and you're a good fit. So then I found a closet, a storage closet that was full of like old computers or something. I emptied it out and made it my office. That's and incredible. I, and I sat in there for the next five years. <laughs> um, but it was an awesome spot. It was inside the shipping teams kind of area. So I wasn't, you know, whatever, with some kind of administrative, legal, whatever function, right? I was deep in the business. I think from that you know i get my whole sense of a couple of things sense of like embedded with the business right mm -hmm. you're a business person first with with all of your legal training background way of thinking but i got that there as well as a sense for um they had i mean qvc had i, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the same now but they had a fantastic culture mm -hmm. really really fantastic culture and i think it had something to do with you know you got to be humble to work in tv shopping yeah right <laughs> like you're not going around going we're the coolest company in the world we sell stuff to you know people on television so they were super humble and they had leadership training for relatively junior people and I, I got some great training on vulnerability hmm. right that's one of the things I took with me was like showing your people that you know you make mistakes sure 
it's okay to make mistakes, especially for lawyers, right? Like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to learn on the job. I've got your back, that, that sort of stuff. As well as dealing with some really crazy on-air, you know, live TV in six studios all the time stuff, right? You go out in the hallway and there's, you know, models in in dressing gowns with their hair all up and some guy leading a dog through and then some <laughs> other people with a bunch of jewelry and it's all sort of crossing paths and it's all happening like that all the time because it's live. It's like show business. It's totally show business, but it's... It was the largest live TV like production facility in London. So basically in the UK. And it was just, it was a fascinating place to work. And I literally made a list, like start here, work your way through of what needed to be done. And as I ticked those things off, I mean, the biggest one was compliance. Mm-hmm. It was literally like, how do we get to be in my, you know, mind or brand or whatever, a, um, a gold standard in the industry. Mm-hmm. So, the big, the big unlock there was finding a great person at the regulator who was also a business person with legal skills and bringing him on board to our company mm-hmm. and having him be the, the sort of channel back to the regulator to train our people, to train the presenters, to build the policies. And that really like 180 the whole thing, right? We went from a bunch of compliance issues with the regulator where they can pull your TV license, basically that's it, you're done, to not two-year time frame that really that's awesome things uh, and, and yeah the business was incredibly successful I mean it's a very it was an incredibly successful business model so that was super fun then, right? before we get to eBay I, I want to ask you a follow-up there I didn't know that you went through that in the in the dot-com crash and having to find a job I think there's a lot of folks right now especially in tech who are going through layoffs yep. how did you manage that and there also wasn't social media back then and Totally. job lists on LinkedIn and but how did you manage that sort of for yourself emotionally resetting getting back out and, and pounding the pavement to find your next gig yeah. sounds like you had a lot of hustle yeah yeah totally and it was a tough time I mean it was yeah. a really tough time because you know especially when you're relatively young you know mm-hmm. it's probably in my late 20s early 30s and you think you're you know you found something it's going great and then all of a sudden it's like let's go into a room where we talk about your severance. Yeah. You know, you've thought you've really Surprising. got something and there goes the whole team. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, like, the law firm doesn't tell you about it in advance, right? So, sure. surprise, <laughs> surprise. I had not expected to get any severance. Mm-hmm. We were still on the contract of the Natalist Bank employees. So, we got what I felt like at the time was a huge amount of money, 20,000 pounds. Uh-huh. Took that 20,000 pounds and I thought, like, I could go to Thailand. Right? <laughs> or buy a new bike or buy, yeah. Well at that time bikes you couldn't spend twenty thousand. Now you can totally spend twenty thousand pounds on a new bike. But um we we can talk about that another time. But I, I really thought like what am I gonna do next? Right? Yeah. Like there are no jobs, right? Like it was way worse in that in that space. Like because there were just way too many companies that it wasn't that they weren't profitable, it was that that they literally couldn't succeed. Like technologically they mm-hmm. we were like years ahead of our time in what could actually be done. Sure. We had to figure out that we couldn't do it, and so did everyone else. Mm-hmm. There was no broadband, you know, etc. There are tons of issues. So I had to say, what am I going to do with this 20,000 pounds? And I basically just doubled down. I went and I did a master's. I did a master's in law mm-hmm. at the University of London. They had a really great program, as I said. It was very practical, technology and communications law. 
uh, a place called the Center for Commercial Law Studies at the University of London. And this guy, Ian Walden, he was managing that program. He still does manage that program. And he was, he was moving from one firm to Baker McKenzie. And I guess he thought, you know, this guy's got some potential. And I used that to pivot. to pivot into Baker, right? And Baker was the premier sort of tech firm at the time in the UK. Has to be said, there weren't many. Um, but you know, Baker McKenzie, it's a huge international firm. So I got the opportunity to work there and sort of ride out the absolute worst part of the crash uh-huh. through that two-year period. And I could have gone to Thailand, right? I probably, <laughs> who knows what would have happened? I probably would have just you know done something similar, but just like pivoted that way. Went to Baker. Um, and as I said, they didn't have they didn't have anything for trainees or associates in 2003 or whatever that was 2004. So, I mean, I literally still remember to this day walking out the doors of Baker McKenzie onto the street in London in Hope. It's called Hoburn Circus. Okay, is the name of the street. And I totally remember coming out and being like, "Okay, what are we gonna do now, dude?" Like I hadn't been, yeah. you know, hadn't been networking. Right. I was an associate, like a, a first year at a law firm. On a path, and um, then yeah, path and then is different. Yeah, again, like for the third time in three years, I just went back to my my net, basically the people that I knew who were job agency types, legal job agency types, and that was a pretty small group in the UK at that time. Contacted them and said, "Hey, I'm back. You know, I'm available for work." And one of them eventually contacted me, it took a few months, but contacted me and said, we've got a, a contract gig, you know, just a couple months at QVC. It's like, well, awesome. It's got someone. Well, yeah. it, was, it was very on point for me because it was basically the CTO hiring for this technology legal work, which is yep. basically just transactional work, buying stuff. Before we get to the, the sort of like meat of the conversation, some of your philosophy around legal and legal ops and high performing teams, Tell us a bit about your 10 years at eBay and the transactions and mm. your time there. Yeah, yeah. After I left QVC, we, my wife and I, we decided we're, we're going to have kids. We're going to travel first, go back to the U.S. after that. I had this amazing opportunity to work on the Obama campaign for a little bit. We were in Florida. We, mm. were, we were voter protection lawyers and did a lot of canvassing on the campaign. And of course, you know, 2008, we won. So that's always good. It was a very, you know, exciting time. And then we did a bunch of travel all over the world. And then came back, and I did a, a short stint back in the UK again. and did some time, time at Amazon, which was super, super interesting and insightful to almost a year at Amazon. And then came back to the US, and I really thought, like, I've been away so long. I need to do a refresher, almost. Like, I did not trust that I could practice law in the US. Which is kind of, now that I look back at it, it's, just incredible how like we lack confidence early in our careers, right? Yeah. And we just think like people are gonna see that I don't know US law or something. So I, I actually went back to school, did another LA. Again? Yeah, I went to Santa Clara University. Oh, that's right. Yep. And only basically made it through one semester on campus. You know, that was fun and interesting. They had some good courses there, good professors, and obviously very tech heavy place in the valley. Before Axiom contacted me to say who I'd worked for in the UK um, at, at Amazon. Axiom contacted me and said, we've got this gig at eBay and uh, they need somebody to support a very international part of eBay. It's called the eBay Classifieds Group, mm-hmm. which was a collection of uh, classifieds businesses. So basically Craigslist, but if Craigslist was run by competent 
people who cared about their customers and tried to make real money, right? Um, <laughs> a business, basically. A real business, yeah. yeah, a real business. But in each of these countries, the leading sort of internet platform in all of these countries, and if you're Canadian, you would know Kijiji, if you were Australian, you would know Gumtree. If you're German, you would know eBay Kleinenzeigen. Now Kleinenzeigen is two days ago that they rebranded. But like in each of those countries, these are places where like millions and millions and millions of people do pretty much everything that you do on the internet that's not transaction, right? So everything that used to happen in the back of the newspaper happens on classifieds. And somewhere like Canada, you know, like the number one place to buy and sell a used car is on mm -hmm. Kijiji. Same with a mobile phone, the same with like buying or renting a house, all of these things. So it was a, a really strong business and a super high growth rate and a really interesting portfolio of like some extremely nascent money losing businesses in places like Mexico or South Africa or Argentina. Mm -hmm. And then some quite strong mature businesses in places like Germany or the UK or Denmark or Australia or Canada. And then some really speculative stuff that never even got off the ground, along with a whole raft of like M&A just constant M&A, like do we want to buy a vertical in, like the boat's vertical, right? To, to plug into our yeah. autos business kind of thing. Or do we want to buy a property horizontal or, or vertical in some country somewhere in the world? So it was a really interesting business and almost entirely outside the United States. So ironically, right, I go and I study U.S. law because I'm worried about that. <laughs> and I end up in a job that's almost entirely outside the U.S., right? And I, I got a, an incredible education in, like, you know, privacy law in South Africa, sure. employment law in Singapore, et cetera, right? German, you know, dealing, as you know, dealing with German regulators can be quite challenging, et cetera. So it was, it was, it was super interesting business. And they didn't really have legal support, certainly in market, right? They have very limited legal support in market. And it gave me the opportunity to, I mean, like it wasn't as if the eBay core business was gonna give this business, which was relatively small, about 200 million in revenue, I think it was when, when I joined, wasn't gonna give that business 20 lawyers. Mm -hmm. right? They weren't gonna give them many lawyers. I was a contract lawyer who was being paid for by the business. Right. right? So I had to, first of all, prove my value enough that they would hire me full-time, Yep. right? Which I did. Then I had to prove my value enough that they would let me build something more than just me, mm -hmm. which they clearly needed, right? Because this business was, was growing dramatically. I mean, some places- in revenue and no lawyers, that's- uh... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, uh, it was the same. Uh, it's, it's always amazes me that the companies, you know, because they're just not advised by their law firms that it's better to have somebody in-house who really understands the business and really sure. embedded with the leadership team because it's not in the best interest of the law firm, right? So I proved my value at one level and then I had to prove it again to basically the leadership team and the leader of a, a part of the business, right? Mm -hmm. At that time, it was the emerging markets part of the business. And you know, had some very challenging, you know, times there mm -hmm. because like doing business in Mexico, South Africa, Argentina, maybe going into different parts of Asia, pulling out of some parts of Asia, like all of that is a very challenging environment. So super fun, though, like really interesting and fun. And I was able to go from there to, you know, basically starting to build a team, mm -hmm. starting to bring people in. And of course, initially it was, well, you're spending X hundred thousand dollars in Canada. 
how about we cut that in half and I bring someone in, right? And then actually more like cut it by, you know, this guy's super hard worker in Canada, mm -hmm. Ben, and you'd probably cut the external council fees by at least 80%. Wow. Then you can reinvest mm -hmm. that and start, you know, start the ball rolling. It's a virtuous cycle. Absolutely. Virtuous cycle where you, you take the, the, the low hanging fruit, the savings from that, and then with a vision and a plan, reinvest that into continuing to scale the function. And over time, you know, we, we put lawyers on the ground in a number of countries, of course. There's a number of ways to do things in-house, but one way is sort of the old-fashioned way, which is what I call throwing lawyers at the problem, yep. right? Like just more and more lawyers react to everything. Mm -hmm. Everything's qualitative. You business people, you can't really understand what we do, so just give me a lot of money. Right, and then it'll keep going, and then you'll have this massive legal team, mm -hmm. um, and everything will get taken care of, probably with a very high sort of risk aversion mm -hmm. uh, to everything. Probably a lot of people who have to say no to stuff, not because they really think it shouldn't happen, but because they just don't have the time to do it, mm -hmm. because all they're doing is 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 just reacting all the time. So what I tried to do, and what the team tried to do and my leader at the time, Karen Schwab, tried to do, is instill a sense of, we're gonna scale this function like a business unit, right? Yep. The legal function like a business unit. And, and the way we did that at, at, at EBIT Classifieds was to say, we're gonna build a centralized commercial contract function off the, you know, associated with the eBay ops, legal ops function, and use that to take in, like we had a massive contract volume, right? We had something like 4,000 deals a month. Wow on just on like Salesforce, right? And then under that, we had hundreds and hundreds of, of revenue deals that had to be reviewed mm -hmm. from all of these countries all around the world. And so that was like, I initially thought this, we can't do this, it's impossible, mm -hmm. right? There's no way that we can have a central point that reviews all of this stuff and deals with it and however we're gonna deal with it for Denmark, Germany, Australia, Canada, mm -hmm. You know, South well, language, Mexico, tons, no, totally, exactly, Argentina, tons of places where they want to deal in their local language, mm -hmm. local law, all the customary stuff that you might run into, you know, Arge I have some tons of stories about dealing with businesses in Argentina or even law firms in Argentina, but it really seemed like an impossibility, but I have to say, with the help of some super strong people who built that function on, on my team, we were able to, over time, over a sort of three, four year period, pull together a system for dealing with all that volume and doing it in a super effective and scalable way. You know, the goal of that wasn't do things fast and cheap. Right? Sure. The goal of that was how do we accelerate the business while at the same time giving our lawyers the headspace to become, you know, first just like very, very valuable. Right. Mm -hmm. To free up their time to do valuable work, then to become strategic business partners, mm -hmm. and then to become business co-leaders. Right. So there was always a goal to get rid of the stuff that's low value, that's repeatable, that's not being done as effectively as it needs to be, and move up the chain until I have lawyers in each of these different markets who are literally business people with legal skills on the team mm -hmm. leading leading the businesses. And I think we were very successful in doing that. And that's like. My proudest moment there was having these like great people shine, mm -hmm. great people shine, and then go on after after the the sale of that business 
to become, you know, leaders and really inspirational people in their own rights. You went zero to 25. That's yep. pretty impressive. Well, I've never been a fan, especially after the last couple of years of yeah. like people numbers equals growth or is a positive sure. thing, right? I mean, I'm sure you've had the same where, where yeah. companies would come to you and be like, we've got 50 people now and we're going to go to 100 by the end of the year. And you're like, that actually might be concerning. That's actually a bad thing, right? Because yeah. what I want to hear about is revenue, because back to 2001, right? Yeah. Like, it's great that you've got a lot of people. In, at, at the company Magic's in London, where I, where I did my first gig, they let me choose the desks. And they were sweet desks, right? <laughs> some of them were glass, they looked really cool. Did some air on chairs too? Oh yeah, that was very expensive. And we weren't making any money, right? We were just blowing money all over the place. And yeah. uh, we didn't even know what to do. Don't do that. It's got to be sustainable. It's got to, well, so I like to think of it as like we were really managing the business's resources in the most effective way, mm -hmm. right? As business leaders, we're business co-leaders who happen to have a legal skill set and are managing a function like a business unit. And so I would you know, build trust with the CFO, which we mm -hmm. talked a lot about at the conference, building trust with the CFO through, you know, quantitative metrics, mm -hmm. right? Like really understanding what's moving the needle for the business, and in a lot of cases, contracts, right? Mm -hmm. Like getting deals done, getting them done effectively, not wasting time on stuff like, you know, NDAs, et cetera, MSAs that are repeatable, mm -hmm. that you don't need lawyers to look at if you put the right processes in place, and then you have their backs for in, in case anything goes wrong, which it generally doesn't, doing that such that you can then say, okay, hey CFO, you know we really manage our resources mm -hmm. properly, whether that's time, people, money, you know, technology, whatever, um, risk. We manage our resources well, so what we'd like to do going forward strategically, here's the vision, we're going to build out this function, mm -hmm. I need some people in, in Berlin now to help with that, right? Because we've gotten to a stage where all of the English language stuff that we could push, and that's including like basically saying to Danish customers, we're going to do business in English. Right. We know you guys speak English better than we do. So don't try and force us to do Danish language contracts. It's totally not necessary. And it will speed up all our processes, right? So then super efficient process. But then you get to the point where there's some countries where you just have to do local language, right? Like you're not going to be able to convince Germans that, or Japanese or Chinese sure. right, to operate in English just because you do. So then you need resources on the ground, lawyers on the ground who can, who can operate in German. And that like... This was a huge unlock for us because we had so much volume in Germany. Our two biggest businesses were in Germany. That, you know, took us from, you know, 40, 50% to 60 to 80% of, of the total volume was totally centralized going into this, you know, contract funnel, getting dealt with the right resources and, you know, being efficiently implemented and managed. We're here at Clock. We've been talking about legal ops for the past couple of days. Indeed. You have a philosophy or a view that every high-performing legal team needs an engine room. Absolutely. Can you tell us about what the engine room is? Sure. Who the engine room is, maybe? Yeah, for sure. And what it does for legal and for the rest of the business? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, as I said, like the way we look at the legal function has you know, changed relatively dramatically over the 20 years that I've been practicing, right? We've gone from an in-house law firm that is very much, and even I, I was doing this back in the day, 
where you're basically managing external accounts. Mm -hmm. right? You don't think of yourself as a business person who tries to like deeply understand the strategy of the business and and deal with issues internally and sort of say, okay, well, we're spending X millions of dollars on external counsel. That balance is not right, you mm -hmm. know? We could do it way better in-house. And over the past 20 years, that's flipped on its head. And I think, you know, in, in uh, what I call a modern, effective in-house legal function, you really try your best to use those resources as effectively as possible. And the way, you know, aside from managing your finances in a, in, a, in a sort of modern way, not just using it all on really expensive external counsel, you build process and you optimize processes and technologies and like a business unit would. You wouldn't go to your marketing team, your marketing leader and, or your strategy leader and they would, you know, the only thing they want is more people, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's ridiculous. Of course, they wouldn't just want more people. They'd want systems and processes, maybe some consultancy, optimization, and a really important part, as you know, of marketing is operations, right? Sure. And it's exactly the same for legal. The, the engine room of the legal function is legal operations. And it really adds a, an enormous amount of value to have something that can deal with so many parts of what we do as in-house lawyers in a way that is scalable, mm -hmm. right? Scale, it's not, oh, well, we need another lawyer to do more marketing review, right? Um, mm -hmm. Don't do that. Like build a process, build a workflow, have a, have a contract management system that's more and more intelligent over time that somebody else takes care of, right? Mm -hmm. That's integrated into your, your, all of your business processes. Turn over the, the relationship from you know, the lawyer who has to manage the relationship every single day, of course you want them to have a strong relationship with their, with their business people, but turn over the option for the legal intake to a system and an operations team that is, in most cases, vastly better at doing that kind yeah. of work, right, than lawyers. It's different. Yeah, different work. It's totally different work, and it's not something lawyers are generally trained to do. Unfortunately, I think that needs to change, and I'm working on that too. As you know, I'm doing some law school stuff to try and work on that. But for the moment, you know, most lawyers aren't operational experts. Right? They're not project managers. They don't have that kind of training. And if you bring people in that can do that and build a build a function to do that, you get enormous benefits. And I think the key benefit. You know, as I said before, it's not about just saving money and doing things faster. Mm -hmm. It's about giving your 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 in-house legal team the opportunity to have some headspace so they can think about vision, mission, strategy, context, product, and become really great business co-leaders. And all of that together, both the ops and the strategic guidance can accelerate a business in a way that the old school way of doing things by just throwing lawyers at the problem so they react to everything that comes in, they burn themselves out, the business doesn't like them because they slow things down. Totally different game, right? We want to be the, the business people with legal stuff. That sounds like a lot of change. How do you bring business stakeholders who should really like this yep. along with you? And also importantly, how do you bring legal leaders, other lawyers on your team along with you too? Because it's going to mean change for them as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we talked a lot about this yesterday at the conference, but I think that there's totally two sides to the coin to that change. Both sides involve trust. I think that the common thread there is building trust with other people, right, in the business, and, and whether that's the lawyers or the uh, or the business people. I had the 
you know, the, the real honor and, 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 you know, I guess luck to have some really strong business leaders at eBay Classified who, who and at QVC. I mean, they, they gave me the opportunity to build something which was relatively innovative, an approach to, to lawyering that was relatively innovative. And so I built trust with you know, quantitative, factual reporting to finance, strategy, um, and the CEO. As well as just you know working my butt off, yeah, right. Like we're proving your value, getting your seat at the table, owning your seat at the table. Doing that requires an enormous amount of effort, and mm -hmm. you know, lawyers. That's easy for lawyers to do, right? That's all we do. We actually need to ramp that down, mm -hmm. right? And be like, okay, working as hard as you can all the time leads to burnout. Yes, and it doesn't lead to effective management and acceleration of a business. Mm -hmm. So doing that, having a vision going to your, your business leaders and saying, here's the metrics, here's the numbers, right? Here's the financial outlook here. Here's how it aligns with our strategy, mm -hmm. right? Our business strategy, really understanding that strategy and where we want to go. I think another, another thing is like to build trust with business people, just enthusiasm. Yeah. Right? Like just straight up enthusiasm about the product, mm -hmm. right? Whatever you're doing, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Yes, I've had read the report on the competitive situation. Yeah. How can I know more? You know, can I come to the meeting? Great, come to the meeting. Of course, you can't do that many times because you don't have time, right? Sure. Because you're spending way too much time doing boring, repeatable, soul-destroying work, right? And so it's true. Part yeah. of the vision and the journey is how do we get rid of that so we can do more of this, right? Partnering with the business and, and really enjoying the wins and the losses, right? Learning from the losses and enjoying the wins. And then building trust on them. So then the other side of the coin is, okay, you've, you've, you've built enough trust with the business so that they will let you, you know, either spend more, uh, from my perspective, it's usually just invest in a different way, mm -hmm. money, right? So you're talking about like, do we want to hire X more lawyers or spend X more on external counsel? Or do we want to bring in a legal operations leader? Mm -hmm. Right, someone who's relatively senior, you always want to hire people smarter than you, right? Somebody who knows better than you about the problem you're trying to tackle. So bringing in that ops leader, reinvesting in that, and then going to your team, right? And saying, like, the way I always set it up is, this isn't about, and there's always fear. Fear, change, there's always fear. I mean, I have fear from change too. I've been through plenty of change, and there's always that visceral, you know, fight or flight thing. But going to your team and saying, this is not, as I said twice already, this isn't about just being faster and cheaper, mm -hmm. right? This is about making your life better. Yes. You are, and I mean, lawyers in general, I think, are, I mean, not in general, they are incredibly smart, hardworking people who are also really creative, mm -hmm. right? They're almost like artists. A strong sense of themselves, too. Yes, yes. And well, strong values. Strong values, strong ethical compass, yes. you know, et cetera. That's why we become lawyers, right? We have something in our background that says, you do this. They're super driven. They want to succeed. And, and you come to them and say, well, I'm going to take 40% of what you do and do it this way that's way faster and more effective. And the automatic reaction that I always see, almost always, is you're taking my job. Right. right? You're taking my it's job. Here. Yeah. Which, you know, if you've built trust, there's less of that, but if you don't know the people that you're dealing with, right, they can, they can be that automatic reaction. And that is not the case. Clearly, like, I don't want to lose great people sure. because we're making things more effective and efficient, right? I want those people to become 
the, the great, creative, innovative in-house lawyers that they can be and business leaders, right? And I think the simplest piece of advice you could give is to anybody in business or otherwise is just trying to create that headspace, right? Take a step back, open your mind a little bit to the possibility of doing things in a more modern and effective way. And I think if you I would also, I mean, very practically, test case. That's what we did that with, with this contract management stuff is focus on a place where you can win. Right? And I think for us, it was the UK or Australia at the time. English language, they were all about it, very innovative environment. So we did it there, it worked great. And then they become your evangelist, right? right. Then they're like, oh, this works great. I have way less of that garbage. Everyone should be doing this. Everybody should Trust be doing the whole business. Yeah. yeah, and then it just sort of goes from there. And, and we actually talked about this, I think, yesterday on the panel. Like the idea of reaching a tipping point where you get to a certain amount of the work is off your lawyer's place. They're having a good time partnering with their business, spending more time in meetings and offsites and understanding the strategy and becoming really, you know, strategic leaders. There's a time when that happens somewhere and somebody says, oh, I get it. It's working. It's working. And for us, it was sort of like 40% of the volume is now off their plates. Not 90%. Yeah. It's like, you know, that takes a long, long time, a lot of work. But 40% is off the plates-ish. And then I, we literally had people come to us and say, I've got some extra budget. I want to give it to you. That's amazing. It was, Not a lot of I, I was shocked. Here that. Yeah, no, I was yeah. shocked. I was shocked. Which really, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, this is a good idea, right? This will actually work. I am not a crazy person. I am you know, <laughs> innovative. I am out there. We're doing something that, that really helps people and, and changes their lives and accelerates the business at the same time. So, you know, from then on, no brainer. I want to double click on, on one thing you said. You talked about bringing metrics when you go to the CFO or you go to sales ops or you go to other sales leaders or marketing sure. leaders. Tell me a little bit more about how you use data to communicate internally and to, to build trust internally. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think everybody now, even in-house lawyers, understands that we need to use numbers in a business, yeah. right? But, but I mean, it's, it's actually quite a ridiculous thing to say out loud, right? Like, you need to use numbers in a business. But 20 years ago, nobody used numbers in a business in the legal department, right? It was just sort of like, give me some money and I'll do this qualitative thing that you guys can't understand. We're so smart, you know? I think we've come over time to understand that we are in a business and we need to operate like business people with legal skills. And so early on in eBay, I think I've told you this story before, Tyler, like adding up numbers on external counsel spend over previous years on my phone, like because we did not have a system at the time. A way to track it. There wasn't a way to track it. Not in a way that was viable. Sure. Right? There was a system in place, but it, it was one of these, you know, we're, we're sort of four or five generations in now to the technology that we can use in, in an in-house situation. This is sort of second generation. Very painful to use without, you know, being a SAP developer. Yep. So I just had to go in there and be like, okay, here's all the years in the past. Let me add this up so I can try and project forward and then make a graph out of it. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, my biggest partner in that one is the strategy team. Mm -hmm. Strategy, go to strategy and be like, I've got this crummy looking, you know, PowerPoint. Yeah. And they work their MBA magic on it. Right. And boom, 
Bain trained them well. Bain trained exactly. <laughs> They're at Bain or McKinsey or whatever, and they did that two-month PowerPoint thing they all mm -hmm. do. And then you got something shiny that you can use for a long time, and then just sort of update once you put the hard yards in on the initial stuff. Then you can, I mean, I would always do unplanned and planned updates. Right. So I had this thing about going around with, you know, whenever I'm in a meeting, got my laptop, having a coffee, whatever, just let me show you a couple slides. Just let me show you something. Mm -hmm. Oh, you got slides? I thought you were a lawyer. Like, yeah, here's a couple slides. Doc. Yeah, not a word. No, exactly. Not a PDF, 36 pages worth of conclusions at the end, right? And, and then you have to send it back to the law firm saying, do this over. But like, op open the laptop and just show them the update. And it's like, here's a graph, very easy to understand. Legal spend over time. And I, I mean, the one that I, I always love is legal spend over time versus revenue. And showing that you are scaling the function, you know, spend may go up. But yep. it won't go up nearly as fast as revenue, right? That's what you got to manage for. Um, spend over time versus revenue at TLI, total legal spend over time versus revenue. And then eventually versus benchmarks, right? So that's that's the real company. Like, yeah. Yes, yes. And that is super hard. Uh -huh. That is super hard to do in the in-house legal industry for your particular sector, mm -hmm. right? Right. For a particular kind of, you know, fintech, whatever platform, yep. or healthcare, whatever, like finding that group of companies and then getting the data on who works there, how much they spend on external counsel, you know, lawyers per billion, etc. Like, that's that's tough to do. But once you put that hard work in, then you can say, here's our total legal spend versus revenue over time versus benchmarks, mm -hmm. right? And that's hard to argue. That's that's the kind of thing that makes your CFO smile. Absolutely. Like, this guy is really trying. Gets it. He may well he may not be as good with this as my head of strategy. Yeah. But he's doing his best to show that he is managing the resources of this business in the most effective way. So when he comes to me on that quarterly cycle or biannual cycle or whatever it is, with an ask for a number that for most businesses is a rounding error compared to like the marketing team, yeah. right? Marketing team needs a couple hundred million dollars and you're like, can I get like a hundred thousand to set up a team in Germany? Yes, yes you can. And you may have to wait till the end of the year when they haven't been able to hire every single product developer they wanted to hire. And you might get, you know, that yeah. leftover headcount, but you still get it, right? And then you build and you prove and you build and you prove. I want to start to wrap up by asking you about the future, where you think legal is headed, where you think legal ops is headed. Sure. You had a, you didn't say this, but you brought up a sort of provocative idea yes. of potentially GCs in the future reporting into a head of legal ops or a legal ops, an operations leader. Yeah. Tell us where you think the function's headed. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I think as the legal operations is even more nascent in its development than the in-house legal function, right? Legal ops didn't exist as a profession 15 years ago. It is now a, uh, a relatively well-formed sort of group of responsibilities, but it's still, in, in many places, not as respected as it should be. Right, and it's not as senior as it should be. And it's, it's almost like in-house legal, just a little bit earlier in its development, where there's no training even. There's no like clear, this is what you should be doing as a legal operations leader. There are a few people doing it, there's some great books, 
that you can get uh, that sort of wrap it up nicely. But I think you know as operations develops, as the value of it increases over time, we're talking like both in sophistication and now in intelligence because of all the artificial intelligence stuff that's happening, that function will just continue to be more and more valuable to a business. And I say that like specifically to the business, mm -hmm. not necessarily just to the legal function because sure. operations is much more than legal, right? Operations is the place in legal where you have like a direct physical almost connection into the business, to the sales operations function, to the marketing operations function, etc to the CFO to finance directly, right? They can see your system, you can see their systems, you can you can tweak and, and accelerate the business. So I think that that will become more and more important. And as, as, as Megan Niedermeyer said yesterday, like legal operations should, for most general counsels, be your first hire, mm -hmm. right? You should have some form of operations as early as possible as you can in, in a modern effective legal function, yeah. And then the quote about ops leaders managing the general counsel. I heard that from, from the CEO of the legal tech business um, in, the last, in the last week. And uh, I can't say I agree completely with the quote, you know, having been a general counsel or whatever. Sure. But I really like the idea of sort of just like changing the mind. Like nobody ever said that to me. Yeah. I love that. It's disruptive, right? And I think the legal tech space and the innovation around legal operations is the most disruptive and innovative part of the in-house legal sort of sector at the moment. So I just love the fact that people would say to my face, right? <laughs> yep. You imagine in the old days coming to a general counsel and being like, well, you should, you should report to the ops person. Like, Rrr. But now we see plenty of lawyers reporting to COOs of businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the CFO, but often Becoming COOs of businesses and then or the CFOs or even CEOs of businesses. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and like the move from a business person with legal skills to the COO of a business isn't that big of a leap, right? It's all about project management. It's all about effectiveness, efficiency, managing, you know, process policies and technology really well. I think there's there's definitely something to the fact that it's not so much that the general counsel reports to the office leader, but the person who does the job of leading legal function, leadership is the key skill, mm -hmm. right? And that's business leadership. And business leadership is a lot of operations. You can have a great idea, but if the ops falls down, the business will not succeed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, ops is the future. That's a great place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. We really appreciate you sharing your insight with all of our listeners. And thanks to all those who are listening. We'll see you next time on The Abstract. Thanks for having me, Todd. Cheers. Mm -hmm.